I just finished the Arizona Trail 800 a couple days ago. Um, I'm from Marquette, Michigan. I do most of my time recently in Colorado, though. Try to limit my time in Marquette. <clears throat> um, and try to be focusing on these bikepacking races pretty recently. And Colorado has been a really good place to train for them. So um, with some time in Arizona too, but there's a lot of snow in Colorado. <laughs> yeah. I saw it just snowed up in Boulder the other day and I'm like, I'm glad I'm down here in, in Arizona too. <laughs> yeah. Right. I wasn't, wasn't so happy about it the first three, four days of the race when it was a hundred degrees plus, but now it's getting nicer. <laughs> yeah. Now that you're done and I uh, can recover a bit in the cooler temps. Um, let's just, let's jump into it, man. Like what, like what is the AZT 300, 800? Cause I think a lot of people are just, they don't really know much about it. So like, you want to kind of sum that up? Yeah. So the 300 and the 800 both start the same time, the same location, um, Mexico border monument 103, but the 300 kind of takes a different route now. And this is the first year it was ever has ever been different than the 800 route. Um, and for good, for bad, I, I don't know. I, I kind of like the difference in the 800. Now we do the, the lemon push is what it's technically called. And this is at Mount lemon where, um, you're past Tucson. It's about hundred and upwards of 120 miles into the race. The um, 300 takes the Catalina Highway through the Catalina Mountains, and the 800 takes this major hike-a-bike push, basically, around the push wilderness, which is kind of why it's called the Lemon Push. It's a it's a push of your bike, but also a, a detour around the push wilderness of the AZT. And the two routes meet back together at Summerhaven, and they're the same route from Summerhaven, which is kind of the top of... Catalina Mountains, the top of Mount Lemon. And we descend off the backside of that and toward Oracle and um, eventually Gila River to Picket Post, where the 300 finishes and the 800 goes on toward Gold Canyon, Apache Junction. Um, I did the 300 last year and was able to win the 300 last year. So the progression for me was kind of do the 300 and then go to the 800 this year. Um, then the 800 just, it goes through so many different environments than the 300 does. The 300 is kind of more desert-like the entire time, drier, but it definitely goes into the Catalina Mountains by Summer Haven and has, you can have a mountain environment there. But it's definitely more single track the entire time and more trail focused where the 800 does take a few detours. It's still very trail single track focused, um, but the 300, I would say even more so, and it's more technical and more of your classic Arizona desert single track environment. But the 800 does then after you leave Phoenix kind of goes into some higher mountains, the four peaks climb. And you really start changing environments there. It seems like out of the desert and um, it kind of almost feels like an 
you're working into a mountain environment on that four peaks climb and then you're kind of like back into high desert and you hit Payson and it's kind of high desert and um you go up from Payson and Pine and toward the Mogollon Rim and that then feels like northern Arizona big pine forest and um, very much out of a desert-like environment and more like a mountain it's not so much of a mountain environment um it's not huge mountains but it's definitely thick forest um you're not in the desert anymore for sure and kind of work your way toward the grand canyon which is still a long ways off but you're working your way toward flagstaff and it kind of stays this thick forest environment for a long time and maybe a little bit of high desert like as you approach Flagstaff, but pretty forested. And then from Flagstaff, you go up into these San Francisco Peaks Mountains and it's kind of like high alpine single track up there. Um, it goes just above 9,000 feet, I believe. And it, it really feels like pretty high mountains in there up there, it's cold. And it's pretty cold from Flagstaff. Um, and you descend out of these San Francisco peaks eventually. You're on a bunch of just awesome single track up there. And you descend out of there and um, toward the Grand Canyon, it kind of goes down out of these mountains. And then you're on just some kind of like high desert single track toward the south rim and it kind of climbs back into a, a more steady forest toward Tucson in the south rim. And, and uh, yeah, I think everybody knows what the Grand Canyon is like. <laughs> um, but uh, it's a big decision at Tucson. You can ship your pack there or you ride with your whole pack. I, I had shipped my pack to Tucson, which is right at the south rim. Um, and rode from Tucson to the South Rim, which is just very fast ride to where you have to disassemble your bike and um, hike down with it. So I picked it up at the visitor's center there and it all went pretty smoothly. Um, threw the bike on the pack at the South Kaibab, where the portage starts, and made it down to Phantom Ranch at the bottom in about three, three and a half hours, which was. I thought I was hiking pretty fast going down. And then, of course, the huge climb starts at Phantom Ranch at the bottom. Um, it's pretty flat for a while. You kind of follow the North Kaibab along the river there. And then eventually after this flat meandering trail, you see all the switchbacks and you're just like, oh, my God. <laughs> And it's this huge climb out. Um, and it ended up taking me 13, 13 and a half hours to go from south to north rim, which was pretty decent. I think the fastest time someone did it was close to 11, 12. Um, but I also stopped at the bottom for a while. Phantom Ranch, they have lemonade and snacks and whatever. I took some time there. Wasn't in a particular hurry to get out of the Grand Canyon, but definitely wanted to be efficient. 
um, got up to the north rim and it hurt feet feet hurt so bad it was so cold at the north rim um got out at like 11 30 topped out at the top of the hike bike out of the canyon 11 30 at night needed water of course the spigot wasn't on at the trailhead had to go into the little north rim village visitor center which wasn't very far up the pavement but turn the spigot on and the spigot just shoots everywhere, like uncontrollably soaked me. So then I was wet and cold, <laughs> but um, got water. And that was after I had reorganized everything for like an hour and a half after finishing, maybe closer to an hour after finishing the uh, hike out of the North Rim. And I knew I just wanted to keep pedaling that night. Like it was so cold. It was really hard to keep pedaling after that hike, but it eventually I sort of maybe recovered from the hike and was able to keep pedaling efficiently, maybe after the first 10 miles of just taking it easy. And pedaled that almost the entire night till about 5 a.m. and just started falling asleep on the North Kaibab um, on some single track coming off the plateau there. And I was like, this is just not worth falling asleep around the corner and like crashing this late in the race. So I took a, a sleep until the sun came up around 6.15, so just over an hour. And then just felt great. The sun was up and it's a big, mostly a descent from the North Kaibab Plateau there where I was, which is about 30 miles north of the North Rim. And was just stoked that there was so much descending to the finish so that kind of pushed me to just get it done after that and I had energy and adrenaline and was feeling pretty dang good for how far I was in um, uh, yeah, that's awesome man like this is such an incredible trail and like it's just so diverse and everything. And like we were talking about how like everyone assumes like oh, it's Arizona, it's this flat open desert and just full of cactus and stuff. And like, yeah, there are a lot of cactus, but the trail is very variable. And I think that's kind of the cool thing about it is, is like you get up in these mountains that are just super cool, but then you're also down in the desert, some really cruisy stuff. And then you're also climbing and it's like, I don't know, the trails is very diverse and it makes it really exciting. Yeah, it's incredibly diverse, like diverse in terrain, diverse in temperature just diverse in everything you see, you go through so many different environments. Um, and that diversity is awesome, but at the same time, it's so hard to deal with those temperature changes. Like the first three, four days, I'm like, why am I carrying this huge sleeping bag and like this puffy down jacket and all this rain gear? And oh, I, I had every piece of clothing on that I took with me after the North Rim. It was it was cold. Like people are saying it was in the teens. So. Yeah, I, I believe it. So how do you, how do you plan for so much diversity along that, along the route? Because like you were saying, like the first few days was like, what in the hundreds, if like nine high nineties, if not hundreds, and then you're up at the North rim and you're in the like teens, like it's, it's freezing cold up there. So like, how do you plan for that? Like, I guess clothing wise, but also like mechanically with your bike with the different environments. Yeah. It seems like, Almost all of these bikepacking races, I get extremely cold at some point. And 
I just knew, I know that that environment in Northern Arizona was going to get cold, like no matter what, like if it last year, I think they had snow this year, there wasn't so much snow, but the cold was definitely there. And if I can stay warm, like it doesn't matter what the cost is on weight or space, like warm and comfortable and able to keep going always seems to pay off. So I didn't care. I, I had taken more gear than I had ever taken on any of these efforts, which I say any of these efforts, I mainly am comparing to like the Colorado trail race, the CTR, but I've done some other bike packing races, but it just seems like if you can keep going and you're comfortable, it is usually worth the weight and space to take it. So, um, the puffy jacket seems to always get used in any sort of overnight race in the mountains in an extreme environment. I knew I was going to have to take that. Um, and then, I mean, we can go into like the gear that I took, like the rain, the rain gear seems to always serve as a couple purposes. Like if it is wet or raining or snowing or whatever, like it's always an extra layer to like on top of my puffy jacket. So not only did I have it as backup for if it did rain, which it rained a little bit, not much, but um, it's always like an extra windbreaker on top of my puffy. So I knew I really couldn't skip out on the warm stuff. I guess as far as the hot stuff goes and like trying to cover my arms and legs from the cat claw and all the prickly stuff out there, I did take the, the white like sun covers that a lot of people use but the trail this year in the southern aspects of the state was pretty clear compared to last year there was less water this year in Arizona I believe so stuff didn't grow as much um so I hardly even put those covers on I just let my arms and legs take the hits there weren't that many hits to take from the cat claw and um, whatever brush there was last year. Last year was kind of insane um, with the overgrowth. So at the same time, it was crazy hot. The trail was also rode very well. Um, I think that's might be a trade-off in sort of every AZT year. Well, if it's wet, you might have uh, better water and less heat, but we're going to have more overgrowth. So I guess kind of thinking about all those challenges, like I knew in the first three, four days, like I couldn't push it crazy hard because it was just going to be so hot and you have to be able to eat in these races, at least for me, like solid food. And if my upset my stomach because of the heat, which sometimes my digestive does get messed up during the heat, um, I knew I had to take care of myself and not push it so hard to the point where I can't eat. So there's tons of electrolytes, so much salt in those, that first, those first three days, just every time I'd get water, filter water, um, I'd be putting electrolyte tab in or some sort of mix. Um, I stayed away from caffeine the first few days, just, I'd rather use it more at the end of the race and focus on just hydration in the first few days and taking care of myself and definitely still sleeping. And then I, I think that paid off at the end of the race. I was really able to push it at the end, just making sure I was taking care of myself in the heat, like still moving in the heat, but 
not tipping past that breaking point is kind of a fine line. Yeah. So then you were saying you brought like a big sleeping bag with you. Like how big was it? Cause it's like most through hikers and stuff will take like a one pound bag, like, like a, maybe a 30 degree bag or something. Were you down like zero degree temp bag or what were you, what were you thinking for that? No, it, I guess it wasn't that big. I, I, it was, it's a 30 degree quilt. It was actually okay. pretty small, but I, in terms of stuff in my kit, it's probably like the biggest thing to stuff into my handlebar bag. So, I mean, I was definitely wouldn't go any less than the 30 degree mark. I don't think whether it be a bag or a quilt, but, um, I took my warmer bivy, which is the SOL sole bivy. It's a little less waterproof, but I do think it keeps me warmer. And then I, I didn't take my, I do have a 30 degree sleeping bag too. I'd opted for the warmer bivy and the, the quilt, which the quilt was still plenty warm. I wasn't with all my clothing on at night inside the quilt and the bivy. Um, I didn't really get cold inside the whole setup. I just didn't want to get out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know how that goes, especially when it's just freezing, like you're saying in the North Rim, you can just get, get pretty gnarly. Um, as far as like bike, like what was your bike setup like and what kind of packs did you use for it? And then, yeah. Yeah. Um, I rode a specialized Epic Evo, um, that I changed the front fork to 130 travel. I think stock, it comes 120, 110. I rode at 130, 110, which I think my hands and wrists really appreciated. Um, they're still, of course, still sore and it's kind of hard to close all the way, but <laughs> I think we're getting there. Um, I don't think I'd want to go any less than 130 in the front. I think that little bit of extra really benefits from pushing on the descents. I like to descend pretty hard um, and really use the suspension. Um, but the bike worked pretty dang well the whole time. I definitely got little nervous about the rear tire, just so much wear from all the, the, mostly from the first 300 miles of the race, just so rocky and technical. Um, thought about maybe going to replace it at a shop, but just milked it through and it made it ran, um, Maxis icons, um, which I might step it up when I do it again. I will do it again at some point, but I don't know when, but I would probably go one step up from the icon and aggressiveness just it wore out pretty dang fast and i would never had that experience before of really worrying about the tire that much um i ran a cable setup against versus axis wireless which the cable worked great until about flagstaff and i really couldn't shift anymore and it was just so gummed up i'd try to downshift and it would just stick. It was just stuck there. I'd have to like kick the derailleur to get it to go. So I stopped at the little gas station there right off the AZT and picked up some silicone spray lube and took the cable off the derailleur and sprayed that in, tipped the bike over as much as I could and tried to get some lube in there. And it freed it up. I like it. I didn't have to kick the derailleur anymore, but um I'd still have to dump like three to four years just to get it to move and then go up from there. Um, just cause it was so off. Like you could not, it was still sticky. You could not adjust it any way that 
would get it to work flawlessly. So I just kind of, if I couldn't get it into the granny in time, I'd have to hike, which was fine. Um, it'd be nice to get it into the granny a little easier, granny gear, easiest gear, but um, I don't probably wasn't that bad that I couldn't use it. I do, I am the type of rider who likes to pedal up a lot of the techie, technical stuff, especially like if it's short and punchy, I think it's faster. Just stay on, and then if it's longer, and get off and hike. But um, simply couldn't get it into the granny, and it wasn't worth breaking a chain if it wasn't shifting smoothly. So I just got off and hiked quite a bit of it if I couldn't get it in in time, which was definitely a compromise. Um, the packs were amazing. I have Morrow packs, James Morrow out of Marquette, Michigan. Um, He's a small company up there who does anything you want. Um, just did an amazing job with my my first request on packs that I wanted, specifically for the CTR and for the Arizona Trail. I was thinking um, about what I wanted for a while and sent him in like what I my request and got him back less than two weeks later, I think and perfect fit everything has worked flawlessly so far i've got a ton of miles on them um they've been amazing um and i guess as far as packs go bike right there but that's not my my bike packing bike it's my other bike um i run a full frame bag which is from moral packs um and I can fit a ton of stuff in the frame bag. It's awesome. It's got a little divider. Uh, down tube bag which holds like my batteries and kind of heavy stuff. I try to keep that low on the bike. And then a small saddle bag. I like to be able to put the dropper all the way down. Um, and I can um, that set up the geometry kind of works out where it's just a small bag on the back and it didn't rub the rear tire once, even at full compression and full drop, which I think is really key to have in something this technical for this long, be able to get that post all the way down and not have anything back there to kind of disturb you when you're descending. Two top tube bags, both Morrow packs. Um, one specifically is a pretty long but it, it's complete lace up everywhere and stays completely in place i can fit just a bit more in there than i can like any other pack that didn't have custom made um and then bedrock bags uh moab handlebar bag on the front i have always used and it kind of curves back and shifts the weight a little bit differently and i pack a ton of stuff in there because I don't use the a really big saddle bag, um, just minimal back there. So like my sleeping bag, bivy, a lot of the clothing goes into the handlebar bag, um, and sometimes I can even stuff like little extra snacks in there, like a a muffin that I can just squish in <laughs> or something. I don't mind if it's squished. Um, and then sometimes I run. There's a little accessory they have on that bedrock bags Moab bag off the front. And 
like this year I didn't run it in any other races but this but I knew I was going to need the extra space it just kind of gets in the way of the if you run a handlebar light it kind of sits up too high to use it but I so I just ran lights on my helmet which was absolutely fine um and then I still ran the mount on my handlebar just as a space to carry my backup light but I would just when they were on they were on my helmet um Ray, I used the Patagonia Dirt Roamer backpack, um, which is a little bit bigger than anything I ever ride with. It's still a mountain bike specific riding pack, but it was really easily able to carry three liters of water in there, plus like a bunch of snacks, plus extra water. So I left Tucson with eight and a half liters of water because it was just so hot which is probably the biggest carry I had to do. But that, that pack got heavy with all that water and, and extra snacks in there. Trying to think about other bags. I think that was it for bags. Yeah, interesting. So I guess speaking about food then, and uh, before we started recording, we were talking about this kind of like how much you ate uh, potentially. Um, let's talk about what you ate in maybe an, a general idea of how much, like not necessarily like specific calories, you know, you don't really count, but uh, like how much did you eat, do you think per day? And then like, what were you eating the entire time? You mentioned not having caffeine for the first few days of the race, but like, yeah, let's just kind of go from, from like, I guess the beginning to, to when you finished. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. Um, the beginning, I didn't stuff my bike quite as full because we do hit Tucson and there's a few resupplies really not far off route, but it was pretty full. And, um, it was just off the beginning, nothing special. Sometimes I'll take like burritos, but like this race is just so hard to get to. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. I didn't really have time or effort to put into making like specific burritos, but I just had like pre-made stuff. Um, I really like wet like moist kind of breads when i'm out there so like lots of honey buns muffins um lots of like nice baked goods i guess off the start soft bagels um some with peanut butter that i put on them um before the start just a little bit more substantial i really like taking packs of tuna and like eating that with like Cheez-Its or chips or something, like before I go to sleep, like I'll get in my bivy and my sleeping bag will get warm and I'll like open up the tuna. And I just feel like that's like a good, like a little bit more substantial kind of food that takes a little longer to eat. So I just eat it before I go to sleep. Kind of tried to do that every night, like have it always carry a pack of that, like some kind of meat I kind of like and the tuna is easy. Um, so I'm pretty sure I did that the first night before I went to the resupply in Tucson that next morning. But yeah, just some protein bars, some not protein bars, um, ton of baked good carbs. Um, lots of, I actually had lots of salty chips and like, I really like Cheez-Its out there. Just lots of salty stuff for the first hundred, uh, first three days it was over a hundred degrees like every day. Um, just as much as salt as I could get lots of salty potato chips, um, which I do usually always crave, but just even more so in those first three days, some, some like salty meat sticks of jerky. Um, 
and kind of resupplied with the same idea in mind at Tucson, but I'll always like hit the resupply and have something hot. Like I was just craving like meat and salt that even in that morning. So I think all they had at that gas station in Tucson was like hot dogs ready to go. So I think I had four of them while I was like packing my bike with the rest of the food that I knew I was going to need to get to Summer Haven. Um, just, and I even took, I took two containers of like liquid Gatorade from that gas station, started pedaling out of Tucson with that and just carried the containers because I knew I was going to need them for extra water anyway. And just as many electrolytes as I could get in. So then of course we hit Summer Haven and you get, you kind of get a nice meal there. There's a, a burger place and there's a general store. So just smashed a, I think it was a chicken sandwich there, chicken sandwich with fries at Summer Haven. Kind of still had some extra food, definitely got the same kind of food at the general store there. Lots of like wet kind of breads that just kind of slide down easy. Um, I do like gummy worms. Like I do like candy out there, but I, it's just your tongue takes so much sugar and I know I get the sore spots. So I tried to limit it, but I definitely probably had a whole pack of gummy worms between Tucson and Summer Haven. <laughs> just keep me sane on that lemon push that is just heaving your bike up these three, four foot, five foot rock ledges using muscles that I don't normally use. And I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I cramped so bad that night going up the lemon push like literally fell over on the trail like leg cramping for like two minutes and that happened a couple times and I was like okay I have to like I just gonna have to stop like that's it like make a recovery sleep I actually slept I think I laid down nearly 12 hours and probably slept 10 of those hours and of course everyone's like why why hasn't he moved and whatever but just the race is long enough. I knew that it, like, if I made enough of a recovery, like it wasn't that big of a deal to sleep that long. I'm glad I did. Cause I woke up the next morning and felt great. Like felt fine. It's like, okay, let's get it done. And that was really the only time I had the cramps, but it was probably just from the hundred plus degree heat. And then using all kinds of different muscles, like heaving the bike up these rock ledges. Anyway, that was before Summer Haven. Go on to Summer Haven, get the burger, go down toward Oracle. There's an option. You could go into Oracle and resupply, but Summer Haven was pretty close. So just continued to eat like the the same kind of thing, the jerky, the baked goods, the tuna into that night. Um, the next section is like the Black Hills. And I guess when I left Summer Haven, I really wasn't thinking about much. This was the last resupply other than getting to picket post, which was the 300 finish. And I really am like, hey, I need enough food to get to picket post without really thinking about, I'm doing the 800 this year. I need enough to get past picket post. And ended up running out of food before then, which I guess we'll get to this later on. I had to go into Superior. But anyway, ran out of food after the Black Hills segment um, at the Gila River at the ADOT spigot. And I was like, great. Now all I have is this, my carbohydrate flow formulas drink mix. And 
it all has caffeine in it. And I was trying to limit caffeine till later on. So this is like the one point in the race, kind of early-ish on, that I had way too much caffeine, but it was the only food I had left. Like I had just eaten more in this effort than I ever have. So I made probably at least two and a half, three liters worth of this drink mix that I had because I knew I was going to need it to get out of the Gila into picket post. And by the time I got done with the ups and downs where you're kind of traversing by the Gila River, the valley there, and you kind of make this big right turn up this really rocky climb to start Martinez Canyon, which is kind of a big climb up to the rain collector and then kind of descend and traverse toward picket post to finish. Anyway, by the time I made that right-hand turn, um, I had so much caffeine in me that like, I didn't even notice the heat anymore. I was like, I feel like a hero. Like it just shot up this climb, like probably faster than I did it in the 300. Like, and I, I knew that two of the other racers who were leading the race were down at the river, like swimming in the river. And I was like, well, if I want to go like win the 300, I need to make this turn and like, just finish this, finish the 300. Like now. I was like, I got water, I got enough to get to the rain collector, I don't need the Gila, and I'm hot, like high on caffeine. <laughs> so I, I got to the rain collector with plenty of water. Wyatt Spaulding was there to take a picture from bikepacking.com, and I was like, yeah, I've had way too much caffeine. <laughs> and uh, But it was, I had enough energy to, since I consumed all that drink mix, and the caffeine got me the picket post finish, and... John Schilling was there um, along with a couple other people. It was great to see. They took a couple pictures and I was like, yeah, guys, I'm out of food. Like I got no choice but to go into Superior. So road pass there a little bit. Um, and for the AZT, it kind of hits a dirt road, but kind of hits the highway and a little bit more efficient to go hit Superior. Hit Superior that night, just demolished a huge calzone and there's a little motel there i think it was like eight o'clock or something i'm like i'm just gonna stay here like what's the point of pedaling back to the trail at this point i'll just make like try to make a huge recovery slept till you know 9 30 to 6 a.m and just started going at 6 a.m and rode with a few other people in the race um toward the bashas the resupply in gold canyon and we kind of hung out there and we all resupplied. Some people smashed a pizza. I think I had a few burritos from Bosch's. Um, the solid food was great there. It's, it's kind of always like a game, I guess, of how much food can I get that will be appealing to me between these resupplies where I get like this nice hot food. And like, to me, it's like worth it to take the time to get this hot food that I'm really craving and then just feel really good and go harder and just use this kind of like food bars, whatever that I'm still hungry. Like I'm still want them, but they're just kind of milking me to the next like spot where I can get some really good food. And I look forward to getting to that spot. Um, So after that Basha's, there isn't really much until, and that this, so 
Gold Canyon, Apache Junction. This is like Phoenix area for those not that familiar. Um, it's a little bit east of Phoenix. You kind of work your way around eastern Phoenix to the north, Suara Lake. And I knew I wasn't going to hit the Suara Lake restaurant in time before they closed. So I had to carry enough food to hit um, Payson at that point. Or not Payson. There's a little there's a little restaurant, Jake's Corner, before Payson, um, after Sunflower, after the Four Peaks climb. And you're kind of in the higher terrain. It might be five, six thousand feet, four peaks, and you kind of descend to sunflower. Um, but it is also another big push from Suaro Lake to Sunflower with no water. Um, Sycamore Creek, you get water, but and there might be a couple places a little bit off the trail to get water, but nothing very easy to get water. So I um, went into Suara Lake. I knew the, the gates would still be open for the little restaurant there. They don't close till five. Um, and the bathroom is open to get water from, and there's some vending machines, but the rest of it was pretty much shut down. So I was able to get a soda in the vending machine and fill up water at the bathroom, but a little bit better than filtering from the Salt River there and more efficient. Um, anyway, do the four peak climb, hit Sycamore Creek, able to get water there. It's it's okay water. It's a little bit, not the best, not flowing that much, but was able to get enough to get to Jake's Corner, which is, you know, 20 miles, 30 miles to pace in on this B tour um, from the, one of the wilderness areas off the AZT. And it's just a little tiny bar and just restaurant food, but fill your water there, get a meal, some fries to go, milk it a Payson. And Payson, you just get every option. I think I went, yeah, I went straight to Arby's and just smashed two meals at Arby's. Went over to Basha's next door. Um, same kind of thing, tons of baked goods, just resupply with that, enough to get me to, to Flagstaff there is a resupply at Mormon Lake kind of before Flagstaff, but um, it all takes time. It's off route a little bit. Just wanted enough to get me to flag and ended up having like one extra bar a few miles to flag. Like it was like perfect. And I ate all my food before the resupply at flag and um it's just this, just kind of the same kind of thing repeated at every resupply, like always the baked goods, get something hot in me, whether it be a burrito, um, a hot meal. I, I sat, actually sat down for a meal and flag at, at um, Mary's Cafe there right off the trail and eggs, pancakes, whatever. Um, give me a whole pitcher of water I could put in my pack. Um, I think it's kind of like the same kind of thing you hit the resupply get a hot food get all the same kind of food in my bike the bake the really good tasty breads and wet breads whatnot that seem to work for me um and carry on yeah it seems like you ate just a ton every day like <laughs> it's a lot of yeah, calories it was a it was a ton like i i tend to just put as much in as i can at the resupply like to the point where I'm like past full, which seemed to work out this race and other races it hasn't worked out, but usually makes me feel the best 
Just go a little bit slower, let it all digest and, and feel really good. Yeah, definitely. And I think like, I don't know, with it being so warm and then everything, like all the salty stuff just, it definitely plays a huge factor. And I don't know, besides like eating potato chips and just salty food, did you take any like actual electrolyte like mixes besides the flow formula? Yeah. I mean, I had like some Gatorade powder out there, some Propel powder, um, some tabs, noon tabs, um, a bunch of different stuff I could just drop in the water. Um, the flow formulas was really like, like the only bike specific stuff I took. And it's, it's just hard to get that stuff like from convenience stores. So I really only had it, what I took off the start, but it was, I took a lot of it off the start. because I do think that stuff provides better energy. I mean, it, it, it has a ton more carbs than just your regular electrolyte mix. So, and it seems to go down well for me. So. Yeah, definitely. And I guess it's interesting thinking about your, your water situation out there. Like you didn't stop sometimes for it, but like, it's interesting, I guess, on, on the Arizona trails, Arizona in general, like how poor the water quality is versus say like in Colorado, like where there's just a lot of cattle tanks and stuff like that. And even like the streams, sometimes they're just not flowing very well and you get kind of like stagnant water. And maybe in Colorado, you could just filter that and drink it and be fine with the taste. But out here, it's kind of like, oh, it probably tastes like, like cow patties or <laughs> or dead animals oh, yeah. or something. Oh yeah. And in Colorado, the water is amazing. Like I carry just thinking about the CT I, Colorado trail. I carry like two, three liters, maybe. I mean, I left Tucson with nearly nine liters of liquid in this one and it was just so heavy, but that's just kind of what you have to do. And you're not really supposed to use a lot of the caches out there. Um, the bikers can move a lot faster than the hikers on the trail. So try to make it without caches of course this year like molino basin was a key one to have like it was just so hot in the catalina mountains there but you can it works out pretty well moving at the biking speed to avoid the, most of the caches like john's john Schilling, the race director is is pretty spot on when he says you really don't need them yeah, that's good to hear. I just I was also thinking about like about your sleeping stuff because you, you said you stopped in Superior, I believe, like got a motel and the day up on Lemon you slept like quite a bit. So like in general, did you prioritize sleep or did you have a sleep strategy going in where it was minimal sleep to get the most mileage every day? And how'd you manage that? I knew it was gonna be kind of touch and feel or touch and go. Um I had sort of a rough idea, but just all these races seems like it's kind of a rough plan. And then it's kind of like, what can I do to survive? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't want to push. I wanted to get four hours like minimum each night. And granted that might fluctuate one end or the other if I'm in a better sleep situation, like at the hotel, sleep longer and then push it less somewhere else. Um, but yeah, I think the first night I slept two, three hours, which is a little bit less than I wanted to. Um, just cause I wanted to hit Tucson, but the rough plan was an average of four hours a night. And then going into it, I kind of changed cause I was like, well, now I know I'm going to have to hit this hit superior and I might as well get a hotel there and I might as well sleep there longer. So like I slept nearly eight hours there and then like the whole thing on lemon, like I knew I just had to lay down for a long time, but like made changes and I was like, okay, like 
going to sleep a lot in this heat and then we make a recovery and push it at the end. So like, yeah, the last night, granted their last night of any race, I'd probably push sleep as minimal as possible, but I slept one hour. And then before the Grand Canyon hike, um, I only slept three, four hours just I was prepping my bike the night beforehand. Um, and then like I made that, made a push to Flagstaff kind of, it kind of varied depending on the, when I got out there, the timing and where it made sense to sleep. Like I can shift it around enough and still be okay. Um, to a certain extent, as long as I got at least a couple hours of sleep. So like I made a push from pretty much the pine trailhead to Flagstaff in one go, which was probably one of my better days and slept just outside a flag in a sandy spot on the trail there. Um, and that ended up only being two, two hours of sleep or so. And then hit the, but I knew I was going to probably get a hotel in Tucson, which I did. So I got two hotels during the run, one in Superior, one in Tucson before the Grand Canyon. Um, and that's right. I slept a little more before the Grand Canyon to see it was still only four hours, but the hotel was nice to have to get the bike ready for the next day, the hike and everything. Um, so it, it rough, rough outline of sleep, but adjust accordingly, I guess. Yeah, definitely. It seems like you're always kind of uh, just playing it by ear, like you're saying, you got to kind of figure things out on the fly and what works best. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, um, I don't know. It's all, this is all super fascinating to me. Like just pushing that long. Like I have a friend running the Arizona trail right now and he's just passed. Like he, I took him over to Marshall Gold yesterday, which I know wasn't on the bike route, but, um, then he's down like out in the desert again. And, like it's just wild. Like he's having to adjust his schedule a bit based around weather and stuff. And then it's a lot slower than, than on a bike, but there's just so many like logistical concerns that come up and you kind of deal with it on the fly and it's, it's part of the game, right? Like it makes it kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can have a total plan for how you think it's going to go. But then when that just hits, when, you know, when you hit a wall and you go splat and, you got to come up with a plan. Like everything is different than what you thought it was going to be. Like that's, that's where you can really, I mean, everybody's facing the same thing usually. So whoever can come up with the plan, like, you know what you need, what you got to do. It's like, okay, I'm going to shift to this. I'm going to do that. And that's going to work. And just being able to run with that and make those adjustments is huge. Yeah. So let's backtrack just a little bit, but um, for the Grand Canyon Portage, how did you figure that out logistically? Because like, I've, I've never done it, but I've always thought about it. I've seen a lot of people doing it and like been in the canyon on runs and I've seen people like, like carrying their bikes through. So like, do you ship your, um, you ship a pack to the, either Tucson or the Grand Canyon post office. And then like, how does that work? Because it seems like a huge pain in the butt, honestly, especially after riding like 700 ish miles. Yeah, I, it was kind of stressing me out, like, as I was approaching flag and leaving flag, I'm like, ah, oh, this timing, I don't know, but it all worked out pretty smooth for how I did it. So I couldn't stand riding with the pack. Um, I did a couple test rides before the race. I couldn't stand riding with it. It kept hitting me in the back of the head, and maybe it's just I have a kind of a short torso. I don't know. So like, however I adjusted it, I couldn't get it to a point where it was, like, really comfortable, where I'd want to ride on it first 
100 miles. Um, so I did ship the pack. I shipped it, uh, Osprey Stratos 24 pack. I shipped it to the visitor center in Tucson, which is just outside the park entrance. So it, was, it wasn't technically the post office. It was the visitor's center kind of post office. They had longer hours than the post office. Um, and I know a couple other guys did that. I think we were kind of discussing it. Um, but yeah, they opened at 9 a.m. So I was there right at 9, like at 8.30, like looking at the person through the door, like open this door. I'm ready, ready to get my pack. And as soon as she opened doors, like, yeah, I'm Alex Schultz. I got a, got a, a, a pack here and ready to pick it up. And she's like, okay, let me, let me go look for it. And she had it back to me within like 10 minutes and had some fresh socks in there, some shoes for the hike, my pack loaded with snacks already. Um, I grabbed the pack, actually threw in my regular pack that I rode the whole race with too. Um, and just threw everything in that pack and was like immediately ready to ride straight to the South Rim and cruise straight to the South Rim. I think I was there by 1030 and just kind of felt like a machine once I got there. I'm like, this goes here, this goes there, that goes there. Strapped the bike up, had the bike ready to go. I think I dropped into the canyon before 11. Um, <clears throat> the pack was pretty dang good. There, I might do a couple more attachments in the future to keep the bike a little less, little bit of sway to it, mostly on the downhill because you have more momentum. A little bit more sway than I wanted, but it wasn't bad. Um, and then, of course, um, afterward, um, I had my regular pack with me. I just couldn't stand riding with that Osprey pack so much. I didn't even want to ride with it to the finish after that. So I just left. I When I was organizing everything afterward, um, I pulled my regular pack out, put my three liter bladder back in it, put, actually took my Grand Canyon shoes. Those are pretty expensive. I wanted to take those with me. I put them in my day riding pack. Um, but just emptied the pack that I used there, left it by the dumpsters at the North Rim, let somebody have a nice Osprey pack and um, kept riding with my, as I did beforehand. And it seemed to all work pretty dang smooth. Yeah, I'm sure somebody had a, a great day when they found that pack too. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it's in good shape, like a, the hike didn't really destroy any part of it. So somebody got a nice pack out of it. Didn't matter to me. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So as we start to kind of wrap up here, man, what was your, like, what was the highlight of the, the route for you? Like whether just the riding or the views or like, what was the most incredible part? Oh, there were a lot of incredible parts. Um, it's hard to nail one, but I guess just that day that I rode from Pine, just outside the Pine Trailhead to just outside Flagstaff, um, it wasn't really the views on that stretch. It was more like I was really enjoying the trail and it was just like I could find good flow in the trail still. And like I was enjoying riding my bike like six days in like hard. Um, and just, I had never been to the Mogollon Rim, and I didn't really know what that terrain was going to be like. I knew in general there's a lot of thick pine forest up there, but didn't really know what the trail was going to ride like. 
Um, and I just really and seemed to enjoy the trail. But granted, they did a lot of work on the Highline Trail between Pine and Mogollon Rim, and that road fantastic. But after that, just making the push up there, I'm like, I feel good. Like, a lot of this race is over. Like, I feel amazing. Like, I'm really enjoying the trail and able to pedal through a lot of this. Um, I think that was my highlight. Like, just going from desert and pine up to this thick forest at the Mogollon Rim and just that whole kind of different, that was where the trail really shifts in environment. Like you really made your desert before pacing and pine and you just then climb up to this rim and it's just this thick forest and you're in the shade and it's like, I just feel great. That's awesome. I, I do love that area as well. Like I've ran up there quite a bit and it, it's fun to go from like, those, like you're saying the dry, like lower desert to suddenly you're up in these like really cool pine environments and like that shift, like that transition zone is just, it's just really incredible and unique and it's cool. You can see it change that fast as well. Yeah. It's like, it's amazing. And of course come very close to it, uh, the San Francisco peaks, mountains outside flag, like you start climbing into these big, like high Alpine mountains and it's like, nice. This is like so different than everything else. The Catalina mountains by Tucson are cool. Like they're really big, but it, then you get into these San Francisco mountains and it's like, feels like Colorado again. <laughs> yeah. I was just up there actually. I was doing working on a film project with uh, Jeff Browning. He's just a, he's a trail runner. And uh, we got the tail end of all the Aspens blowing up and it was just beautiful up there. There's just tons of oh, color up in the mountains and it was amazing. It's a cool place for sure. I bet. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Um, thanks for taking the time to chat. Like it's been an hour or so and I really appreciate your time. And I know you have a, a lot of recovering to do and probably a lot more food to eat at some point today. <laughs> yeah, it probably will take most of my day. <laughs> yeah, set up that stove but, and make some food. But yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks for chatting. Like, uh, really enjoy sharing, sharing my experiences out there. I also enjoy hearing everybody else's. So, um, hopefully I'll, I'll hear some more too. Yeah, for sure. And, um, recover well and enjoy your time down here in Arizona while you're still here. Yeah, definitely. Well, I love it here.